Well, good morning, uh, everyone. Uh, if you're visiting here this morning, let me extend my welcome to, to the welcome that Fred's already given. Uh, we're continuing this morning our series through uh, looking at the church and what the church is and what the church does. Uh, and uh, you might remember if you were here last week that we looked at uh, what the church does. We looked at that and we answered that by uh, looking at a number of underlying principles uh, embodied in the two great commandments, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, uh, mind and soul, and love your neighbour as yourself, and then also the principles embodied in the Great Commission, go into all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all Jesus has commanded. So last week I guess we looked at the principles of what the church does and this week we're trying to put some flesh on those and think, about, uh, think more concretely about uh, how that plays out. We're going to do that uh, under two headings over the next two weeks, uh, under the headings The Church Gathered and The Church Scattered. Uh, I think I stole those ideas from a guy called Randy Pope in his uh, book The Intentional Church. I'm not sure if he came up with it, uh, I don't know, but I mean, it's pretty common thinking, I think. But there's these two paradigms, these two ideas of the church gathered and the church scattered. And this week we're going to think about what the church does when it gathers and next week we'll look at what the church does uh, when it scatters. Uh, if you're a bit worried that I've forsaken the Bible this morning, uh, for my own words, uh, don't be alarmed. We're going to be reading through bits of the Bible as we go along. So uh, if you've got a Bible uh, with you, keep it open. If you don't, there's probably a few still on the back table and you might want to uh, jump up and grab one. I guess the first thing to say uh, and to prove from the Bible as we think about the church gathering, uh, the first thing to say is that the church actually gathers, that foundational to the nature of the church is the idea of gathering. The word church, uh, for, or for anyone who's kind of vaguely interested, uh, the Greek word ecclesia, that's where you get uh, the, the words like a, 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 a ecclesiastical and stuff like that. Uh, that word simply means gathering. It can refer to a legislative gathering like uh, a council or something like that or it can just refer to a kind of a random group of people who gather and get together for some particular reason or other. Uh, that's how it's used in Acts chapter 19.32. This is a, a great crowd and it's called... A gathering, a church, it's the same word. But the technical usage of the word church in the New Testament seems to sit somewhere between those two ideas, somewhere between the idea of gathering and the idea of uh, this um, uh, legislative council kind of idea, I guess, in that it's possible uh, for the church still to be a church even when it's not gathered. It's still called the church uh, even when it's not gathered, but fundamental to the idea of the church is that idea of coming together and gathering. Maybe the most famous uh, gathering in the Bible is, it, uh, is at Mount Sinai in the Old Testament where God gathered the people after uh, delivering them from Egypt. And that uh, gathering is called in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 10, it's called uh, the Day of Assembly. Uh, it's called uh, the, assembly, uh, of God, it's the Assembly of God's people. Uh, Moses says to the people in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when he said to me, Assemble the people before me to hear my words so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land and may teach them to their children. 
that idea uh, is picked up again in Hebrews chapter 12. So maybe that's a good place to turn to, to Hebrews chapter 12 uh, and to verse 18. And Hebrews is, is remembering that gathering and looking ahead uh, and or looking at the reality of the gathering that we already have in Christ. So Hebrews chapter 12 from verse 18. It says, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. So we haven't come to that mountain, to that Deuteronomy 4 mountain, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the city of the living God. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The writer of Hebrews is is saying, if you like, he's comparing those two gatherings, the, the gathering in Deuteronomy 4 and the gathering of God's people now around the throne of God, the gathering of the church of the firstborn, those who trust in Christ, who believe in Jesus, are gathered, the writer says, uh, around the throne of God. It's a, it's a spiritual gathering and the spirits of righteous men made perfect through the blood of Christ. That is, in a sense, if we trust in Christ, we're gathered around this throne of God already. It's not a, a, a hope for one day, but it's a present reality. We're gathered already through the Holy Spirit and we await the physical gathering around the throne of God at the return of Jesus. And in the meantime, the church gathers in places where it finds itself. So there's the heavenly gathering of the people of God and there are the local gatherings of the people of God, like what we're doing this morning. Philip Jensen, in a uh, recent article in the briefing, uh, refers to what we're doing this morning as anticipations. I, I like that word. This is an anticipation of what God is going to do at the end of time. But it's not just and anticipation, it's a recognition of a present spiritual reality. Our gatherings reflect the reality that if we're in Christ, we're already gathered around the throne of God through the Holy Spirit and they anticipate the reality that one day we'll be gathered not just with 250 odd other people but with the entire community of the people of God around the throne of God through Jesus Christ. So throughout the New Testament there we find Christians gathering uh, in, all, in groups of all different kinds of sizes. They meet in big groups and in small groups. Uh, they met as the whole church. In, Paul, uh, in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 23, Paul writes about what to do when the whole church comes together. When he says the whole church, he doesn't mean uh, the whole church that existed from uh, at that time in the Mediterranean region, but he means the whole church to which he was writing, that is, the Corinthian church. The early uh, Christians met uh, at first in the temple, uh, then they met in each other's homes, uh, then in other places, wherever they could gather, they met. 
The basic point is that this idea of gathering and assembling is foundational to the concept and to the notion of what the church is and what the church does. And yet at the same time, the church is more than just a gathering. It's more than just a group of Christians who decide to get together uh, in a place or at a particular time. Paul tells Timothy and Titus to appoint leaders uh, in the churches. So a, a local church has more structure to it than just a gathering. It's more than just people who decide to meet. No, there's leadership, there's structure, there's things which the church does and things which the church doesn't do. But at the heart of it is the idea of gathering. Well, what does that mean for us? What does it mean for us that at the heart of this idea of the church is the notion of gathering? Well, for starters, I think it means that you can't really live as a Christian without gathering with other Christians. The Apostle John basically says in 1 John that if the church is the family of God and you don't love the church, how can you love Jesus? If the church is the body of Christ and you don't love the body, how can you really love Christ? If you're not gathering with Jesus' body, what does that say about your love for Jesus' body? I think it also means that uh, having your name on a a membership list of a local church isn't enough either to constitute being part of a church because being part of a church isn't fundamentally about names on paper. We discovered a few weeks ago it's more than just gathering as well, it's about being in Christ through the Spirit but it also involves this idea of gathering regularly with other Christians. It's not church membership which is the crucial thing but church gathering. If everything else in your life constantly pushes out uh, gathering with God's people and gathering with God's church, then you have to ask yourself seriously whether you really love the body of Christ, whether you really love the church of God. Because gathering with God's people is fundamental to being part of God's people. I think the other thing which this notion of gathering means or this uh, this kind of notion of the church means is that it's not enough either to simply meet uh, with a few Christians and call that church. We've seen that gathering is fundamental but we've also seen that the church is more than just a gathering. In God's wisdom he's commanded us to appoint elders uh, or leaders in the church. He's commanded us to appoint teachers of the word and evangelists and deacons. The call to uh, gather with a local church is also a call to submit to the leadership of a local church. I think it's uh, shocking for us when we read uh, in Hebrews in chapter 13 uh, words about the church where the writer says, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. I think that's really countercultural in Australia in a, in a highly democratised uh, society where it's the voice of the people Uh, which rules the nation, I think it's hard for us to stomach the idea of submitting uh, to leadership. We might do honouring, I think we can do honouring, but submitting and obeying is a much harder concept and yet in God's wisdom that's 
what he has determined for the church. It's not a mindless submission but God says that we should do it because it's for the good of the church and it's because of love for him. There is, in other words, a God-given structure to the local church which we ignore to our detriment. Uh, And as we'll see in a moment, there are also God-given tasks which the church does when it gathers. So the church is more than a gathering, but fundamentally the notion of gathering is really the central idea, gathering with the people of God in Jesus Christ. So we know the church gathers, but what does the church do when it gathers? What is the point of getting together now and at other times? Why do we do that and what do we do? One of the uh, key passages which is often referred to is Acts chapter 2, verse 42 and it might be good to turn to that and we'll read uh, some of that. To Acts chapter 2. So the apostles have just, uh, or Peter's just given his very first sermon uh, after the Holy power of the Holy Spirit has come upon him and the other apostles and uh, thousands of people have been converted in the uh, very first day of the proclamation of that message. And Luke writes in chapter 2 verse 42, this is what the Christians did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved." So what did the church do? Well, they met together and devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. That is, they devoted themselves to the message that the apostles had about Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. In other words, the church is built on the message of Jesus in the Old and the New Testament because They are the words both of the prophets and of the apostles. So the church, uh, the first thing that the church did when they gathered was to devote themselves to the Bible's message about Jesus. What else did the church do? They met together to pray. Uh, They called on God. They, They pleaded with God for his mercy and for his kindness and for his grace in Jesus. Uh, In Acts, as you read through, uh, you discover that the church prays for boldness to speak the gospel. They pray uh, for Peter to be released from prison. They pray for all kinds of things and God hears and answers their prayers. But the key thing is that they didn't just pray on their own. They didn't just pray in their own times of personal devotions, in their own quiet times, but they prayed together. They met together and they prayed together. Uh, Some of the best times, I think, in my own Christian life have been times of praying together with other Christians. Uh, And yet, funnily enough, it's one of those things that we find so very hard to do. Uh, The best times in my Christian life were as part of a church in Canberra. And I remember uh, on Wednesday night I used to go around to the house of a few friends of mine. There were three guys who shared a house. 
uh, and I go around for dinner every Wednesday night and there was a prayer meeting on Thursday night. And every Wednesday night I was, I'd leave, Daniel would say to me, one of the guys, he would say, so Carl, are you coming to the prayer meeting tomorrow night? And I would say, oh, I'm really busy. I, uh, I just, I've just got so much work to do. Uh, and, and, but he just kept hounding me. I think he must have hounded me for about nine months. And eventually I went and it was wonderful. It was the best thing I've ever done in my entire life, meeting with other Christians of all kinds of different ages and we'd sing songs together and we'd pray and uh, I learned to pray uh, from other people uh, who were wise in the faith which God had given them. What did the church do? They devoted themselves to the message uh, of Christ. They prayed together. They had everything in common, uh, Luke tells us. Uh, It wasn't communism. Uh, where no one owns anything. What it means that they had everything in common is explained in the next verse. They sold their possessions and goods. They gave to everyone as he had need. That is, they had everything in common in the sense that if one part of the body was suffering financially, another part would sell what they had in order to provide for someone. In other words, the selling and the giving were constrained by need. It wasn't that they had no property ownership, but the selling and the giving were constrained by the needs of the people that they gathered with. What did the church do? They also met together to praise God through songs, through prayer, through words about what God had done. What did the church do? They devoted themselves to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. Uh, That might... Uh, sound a little bit like the Lord's Supper, the idea of breaking of bread, uh, but there's some pretty good reasons to think that that really is just referring to people eating a meal together. Uh, for example, in Acts chapter 27, Paul is stranded on an island with some, uh, with some sailors and uh, we discover there that he breaks bread with the sailors and uh, sits down for a bit of a meal because they hadn't eaten for a long time uh, and they were refreshed by that. So what did the church do? They ate together. It suddenly struck me uh, a few weeks ago that one of the great things about food is that everybody needs to eat. That might not seem like a particularly profound thought, but think about it. So many of the other things that we try and organise tend to appeal to only one demographic, to only one group of people. If you organise a knitting bee, just say that you had that on your heart to organise a knitting bee, it's pretty likely that only people who knitted would come. (laughs) If you organise a church footy match, it's pretty likely that only people interested in footy will come. Now that's not to say that organising things that appeal to only small groups of people is wrong. That's not, the, that's not the point at all. It's great to have a church footy match. It's great to get together and knit if you like that kind of thing. But the point is that apart from being devoted to hearing God's words and praying and praising God, about the only thing that we all have in common together is food. And you've got to hand it to the wisdom of God and the early church that they knew that that was a great thing to do do together. To meet together and to eat and to have fellowship. 
I think that's a great thing that we do when we, when we organise church fellowship lunches. Uh, that's why it's great to uh, invite other people over to your house for a meal. You might not have anything in common with them. Well, at least you eat. If there's someone in the church that you uh, don't feel you know well, well, why not invite them over to your house for a meal? I mean, it's a great way to get to know people. Surprisingly, perhaps, one of the key things which the church does when it gathers is to eat. And as you read through the rest of the book of Acts, you find those same aspects of uh, being devoted to the message of the apostles and praying and praising God and eating. You find all those things uh, repeated uh, and you find some other aspects as well. And it's worth, I think, just kind of working through some of the passages just uh, to get that sense. So we're just going to work through a few in Acts. Uh, so the, next, the first one is Acts chapter 11, verse 25. So Acts 25. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus. Acts 11:25. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. So we find Paul uh, and, and Barnabas, or Saul and Barnabas, teaching the church. Uh, the next one is in Acts 13, verse 1 to 3. There it says, in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. So we discover that the leaders of the church gathered to pray and to fast and to send people to, into mission work uh, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Uh, look at Acts 14, verse 27. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he'd opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there for a long time with the disciples. So we find the church gathering to hear reports from missionaries, to hear uh, uh, the ministry, to receive the ministry of missionaries and to hear of the work of the gospel. Uh, look at Acts 15, verse 30. So Acts 15, verse 30, the men were sent off and went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. So a whole group of the leaders of the, of the uh, church at that time had gathered to settle a doctrinal dispute and these men were sent off. They gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. So the, the church gathered to hear the report from the Jerusalem Council. They gathered to hear the report the, uh, the decision of the wider church leadership uh, about the resolution of a doctrinal dispute. Uh, the, the last one in Acts is uh, from, from chapter 20, verse 7. 
where Paul is teaching in the context of a meal. Uh, On the first day of the week we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. It's the case where uh, the young guy falls out out of the window and then Paul not only goes to midnight but then goes till uh, sunrise the next day. Beyond uh, Acts we find some other examples of what the church does when it gathers and we'll just look at two more and they're both in 1 Corinthians which is a few books after Acts. So Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians chapter 5. One Corinthians chapter five verse four. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed, and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. What does the church do when it gathers? Well, one of the things that the church does, shockingly perhaps, is to exercise church discipline by putting people out of the church because of serious sin. And the last example uh, of what the church does when it gathers, not the only example, but the last one we'll do this morning is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. Paul writes, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place I hear that when you come together as a church there are divisions among you and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together it's not the Lord's Supper you eat for as you eat each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. So what does the church do or what is the church supposed to do when they gather? They're to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Clearly the Corinthians weren't doing that even though they were trying to because of their lovelessness and lack of care for the church. So we've covered, I guess, a lot of different elements of what the church does when it gathers and the trick is, I think, in some ways to hold all those together and to remember that actually the church is doing a a whole range of things when it gathers. But maybe we uh, can summarise it like this. The church gathers to hear the message of the Gospel, to pray to God on the basis of the Gospel, to praise God for the Gospel of Jesus Christ, to hear about the work of the Gospel to send people into gospel ministry, to remember the gospel in the Lord's Supper and to apply the gospel to sin in the church. In other words, the task of the church in gathering is to be thoroughly focused on the good news of Christ in all its dimensions. And the aim, Paul says in Colossians, is we proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? So that we may present everyone perfect or mature in Christ. To this end I labour, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. 
It really is, I think, stunningly simple what the church ought to do when it gathers. Uh, It isn't rocket science, thankfully. Uh, We don't need to be really clever in coming up with new ideas and new things to do. It's really very simple. The trick is, I think, to believe God when he says that that's what he wants us to do. To believe God when he says that's what he wants us to do, to do it and to persevere in doing it and to believe that by doing it or in doing it, God will bless us through it. We constantly want to invent new ways of doing things, come up with new and clever uh, tricks that will empower our spiritual lives. And we fail to believe God when he says, you don't need to do that. Actually, what you need to do is really very simple. To hear and to pray and to praise and to apply and to remember and to celebrate. To celebrate the gospel. What we need to do is to hear God's words and to believe them and to pray out of them and to rejoice in them. God says that that's all we need to do to be mature Christians and to be a mature church. So we know then that foundational to the church is this idea of gathering and we've caught a glimpse of what the church does when it gathers. But the last question I think which is good to ask is why is it important together? Well, there's uh, lots of ways to answer that question but I wanted to just give one, maybe the most important one I think, the most serious one from the book of Hebrews. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. So Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Why is it so important to meet together? Well, the writer of the Hebrews says that the danger is that if we don't, we'll be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. The writer of Hebrews Hebrews says that we need daily encouragement from other Christians so that we won't turn away from Jesus. And you get a very similar warning in chapter 10. Just quickly look at that as well. Chapter 10, verse 25. Chapter 10, verse 25. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Why? Why do we need to do that? Verse 26, if we deliberately keep on sitting after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Why do we need to keep meeting together? Again, the writer of Hebrews says it's because of our sin and because of the danger that left to ourselves we will turn away from God. Left to ourselves, we'll persist in sin and become hardened in it. A friend of mine used to be the minister of a a popular church in Melbourne and every week 
uh, he would get new people coming through the door and he says every week he would have the same conversation with those people. Uh, he would say, where are you from? They'd say, oh, we used to be part of uh, this church down the road, uh, but we left there and then we went to uh, the, the, the other church that, that was really popular and we went there for a while, but then that, that wasn't working out and so we thought we'd come here and we'd check out your church and see what it's like. To which he'd reply, if you're not part of a church, in three years you won't be a Christian. I can't imagine saying to that, that to someone on the first Sunday that they visited the church. But he did. Because that's the warning that the writer of Hebrews was giving to the people that he wrote to. Why is not gathering with other Christians so dangerous? It's dangerous because our wayward hearts need to keep hearing the truth. It's dangerous because we need people who know us well enough to be able to challenge us in our sin. We need the shepherds of the church which God has placed over us, looking after us and warning us. We need the, the, the challenge which church presents to our selfishness and, and the challenge which church presents to loving other Christians instead of simply being content with loving ourselves. Our doubting hearts need to constantly be reminded to hope in Christ. One of the great uh, tragedies in the church is when people pull back from the, from the fellowship of believers. Uh, I've seen it so often and maybe you have as well that someone, uh, uh, because of bitterness uh, and the inability to forgive someone, someone says to themselves, I, I can't, I can't go anymore, I can't forgive that person, I can't be part of that church, I have to leave. But what ends up happening is that they just become hardened in their unforgiveness and hardened in their inability to move on. Another, people, another person feels left out and so they leave. They decide to perform a test. I wonder if you've ever thought of performing this test. Will anyone notice if I leave? Will anyone call me? Will anyone say they missed me? I think any question that begins with will anyone notice is a dangerous question to ask. It, it never ends well. And putting people to the test like that is actually a really wicked thing to do, to be honest. I've done it. I'm sure we've all done it. But it's a terrible thing to do. And so the person tests and they discover, they think, that no one in the church loves them. And so they leave and they become hardened in conf and confirmed in their self-interest and in their inability to love others when they're not loved in return. Another person might say, I don't think I'm getting anything out of this. I'm just going to leave. And so they withdraw and they fail to realise that for years they had been getting something out of it. In fact, the thing that they had been getting out of it is a challenge not to be hardened in their sin and their deceitfulness. And so they withdraw from the church and the thing that they didn't realise, the thing that they needed most of all, they've lost. And sooner or later their life becomes plagued by sin and they give up on the gospel. 
it's a dangerous, dangerous road to take. Time and again, people's first inclination is to withdraw from the church, isn't it? That's my first inclination when things are hard, to withdraw from the church, withdraw from the community of God's people. And it's about the worst thing that we can do. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about missing a week you know, because you're on holidays or, or missing a week because life is difficult and you, and you need time to think and to, to regather. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about that pattern of stepping out and stepping away from the church. It's a dangerous thing to do. Why is that our first temptation? Well, because Satan knows that God, the church is God's instrument to speak the powerful words of Christ into our hearts and our lives. Why is church important? Why is meeting with the people of God important? Here's the blunt answer, so that you don't go to hell, actually. Not because church saves us, Jesus saves us, but the church is God's instrument. In his wisdom, the church is God's wisdom to keep us from turning away from Jesus. Fundamental to the notion of the church and the people of God is gathering, gathering to praise God, to hear God's words about Jesus, gathering to apply God's words to our lives, to confront sin, to pray and to be brought to maturity in Christ. That is the task of the church and we don't do that to our great detriment. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you gather your church from every corner of the globe, from every tribe and language, from every people and nation. Lord, thank you that even now through the Holy Spirit, uh, those of us who have put our hope in Christ are gathered through your Holy Spirit around your great throne in heaven. Father, continue to gather us here in Launceston every week until the day in which Jesus returns. Gather us every week in anticipation of that great day when we shall see you as you are. And Father, as we do that, we ask that you would help us to to trust that hearing your words and praising you and remembering Christ and applying the gospel to our lives, help us to trust that those things are sufficient for us to be brought to maturity in Christ Jesus. And Father, we ask that those of us, for those of us who are flagging in our faith, we ask that you would help us not to become hardened by sin and its deceitfulness. Lord, help us to persevere in meeting with your people so that we might persevere to the end in our most holy faith. Father, we ask that you would strengthen our weak knees and help us to walk steadfastly until the very end. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.